The Holidays A time to celebrate with friends, with family. A time to look back on a year that was. And a hope for a new beginning. So we invite you to join the superstars of the Michigan Wrestling Organization for its own holiday tradition. The Slams. The Action. The Unpredictability. Join us as we bring to you our holiday tradition. As the Michigan Wrestling Organization presents Christmas Clash, and you can see it live Saturday, December the 11th, beginning at 6.05 p.m., exclusively on Orion Neighborhood Television. The following is a Klaus to the Heart presentation as a part of the Jackal Creations Podcast Network and has been rated M for, for mature audiences only. Some material and dialogue may not be suitable for members of the family under 18 years of age. I'm Jason Klaus, and this is not your regular wrestling podcast. Instead, we go back in time and look at some of the biggest events and most historic moments in the history of professional wrestling. So join me and my esteemed panel of co-hosts, Rex Havoc, Tim Williams, Eric Cherry, Ray Jackson, and the incomparable Pope Brandon Brownson as we go back and look at the golden years of professional wrestling. So grab your foam fingers, put on your fanny packs, make a sign or two, and join us as we take a trip in the turnbuckle time machine. Hello everybody and welcome to the turnbuckle time machine. Here is a part of the Jackal Creations Podcast Network powered by Anchor.fm. I'm Jason Klaus, and we're part of a two-man booth this week. I'm being joined by Rex Havoc. Uh, Rex, it's just me and you today, brother. And like you said at the top, you know, before we started, you know, before we hit the record button, we're not sure if the show is ready for this or not. But here, here, here we go. I think this is going to be fun, but yeah, I don't think they're going to be ready for a two-man booth. I, you know. We're taking it back real old school if we're doing two-man booths because that's all it used to be back in the day, which I think, honestly, now is how it should be. But, um, you know, that's just us. But, you know, we're going back to the classics, so why not have a two-man booth to go over one of the big four of the company uh, heading into the end of the 80s? And this would be the year that the big four was truly established because earlier in the year that we're fixing to talk about was the pay-per-view debut of the Royal Rumble. We're going back to 1989 here on, on this week's show. And before we get going here, um, I would be remiss if, if I didn't um, acknowledge the, 
the fact that originally Ray Jackson was, was supposed to be on this episode with us. Unfortunately, it's 100% my fault because my schedule got all jacked up yesterday. That We, we were supposed to record this on Saturday, and uh, Ray was supposed to, to join us. I had to move the date because of things going askew um, on my end of it. He is actually wrestling this afternoon as we're, we're recording this, so... Um, it's just Rex and I this week. Um, How dare he work and blow us off? What's wrong with him? Now, <laughs> well, listen, you know as well as I do. You know he's at he's at that age, Rex, where it's 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 all about that that rush. You know what I mean? Like we, at our at our points in our lives, I mean we still have that jolt of excitement and and everything. But you know our best years are far far behind us at, at this point whereas Ray is really coming into his own right now coming into his prime as it were yeah yeah he is he is it's I, I, I always like to give as, as the way you and I can look at it we love to give the kids the shit in the locker room <laughs> because yeah. you know uh, they get to do stuff that you know, our bodies, our minds are willing to do it, but our bodies are like, we're going to make you pay for this for week done end. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's got, you know, God forbid anything major bad happening to him. He's got a long time, but before, before that happens, he is running solely on adrenaline and piss and vinegar. So uh, we certainly hope he is doing well and we, he, he will be back on here on the program uh, sooner rather than later. Because we have a, a number of shows lined up here that are going to alternate with the guests. But here this week, we're going, like I said, we're going back to 1989. We're going back um, to, towards the end of 1989. We are covering the Survivor Series that took place on November the 23rd. And this was very much um, during the era, Rex, that the Survivor Series pay-per-view took place. On a major holiday night, uh, this being Thanksgiving and all, and um, the third annual pay-per-view under this banner. And like we had established, 1989, very crucial year uh, for the business as a whole, but specifically for, for the WWF, this would be the year that what would become the big four pay-per-views was truly established with the advent, or the I guess the pay-per-view uh, pre- premiere of the Royal Rumble that would join R- WrestleMania and SummerSlam, and of course the the Survivor Series. Um, as a fan, me personally, '89 man is right in my wheelhouse. This was, uh, you know, the WWF at this point could do no wrong in my book, I, and um, I really feel like. Um, this pay-per-view, when you go back and you watch it, this truly had what us as old school fans felt like was like our all-star game, right? Because they had all kinds, I mean, anybody who's anybody that was in, in the company were paired up in these different teams on this major pay-per-view platform. Is that how you felt about it? Oh, yeah, you know, definitely from uh, my vantage point, 
they were, you know, well beyond the full in stride at this point um, in terms of everything. Uh, I was lucky enough to really witness, you know, the breakout from 84, but you really think about it, 86 all the way to, what, 92 is probably their full swing era. And in the middle of this year of 89, yeah, this literally was, this was literally one of the ones that not only was it an all-star event, but it was something that you watched every single match of. You didn't walk away from anything. You, you know, you were glued to every single match with every single person in it, which is kind of, Rare in these days when you talk to people, because if you're, you know, if you're watching them at, say, like a movie theater or at home with friends or something, there's always something different going on that they might be looking at it. Back in our time, when this happened, I don't think there was ever a time we ever looked away from the TV or that, you know, I mean, we may have joked to somebody real quick, but we were glued to every match, every personality whether it was in the ring, whether it's outside the ring, because this was still in the heyday of some of the greatest managers alive being at ringside. I mean, we had Jimmy Hart, we had Queen Sherry, we had Bobby Heenan, uh, Slick was at ringside at one point. All the majors, uh, even Mr. Fuji was even there at ringside. So all the major managers that played a key and integral part in the business back then every single player you were invested in every single one there wasn't just you know you had that hate for one guy and the love for another guy and you know it it just all made sense even though we look back at it now and go really why was that person paired with that person <laughs> but <laughs> well back, back then, then it was very much ba- you know baby faces versus heels there was no shades of gray it was either yeah, no. on the one side or the other. Yeah, yeah, there was there was no shades of gray back then, but even sometimes in your storyline thinking even back then, it's just it throws up a little bit. Oh. There you go. There you go. All right. Okay. There you go. Um, before we tackle the pay-per-view, let's kind of go back into our time capsule here and, and see what all was happening around the world in 1989. I look at um, the popular movies that came out in that year, and my goodness gracious, it is um, some, some of my most fondest movie or my fondest memories of going to the movies with my mom, with my brother, my dad really does, doesn't do the whole movie theater thing, so he re- rarely went with us to, to any of them. But the big one, Rex, in 1989 was Batman. That was the oh, movie that year. The Tim Burton classic. Yeah. Yeah, I just watched that over, over the weekend, too. Some, sometimes you just got to go back, because I, I knew we, we were going to cover this this event here this week and i was like I, you know i think of of 
89, especially with, with the movies. Batman, obviously, but also No Holds Barred came out that year. Another um, thing we'll be talking about later on in this broadcast. Uh, yep. In, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Lethal Weapon 2, Back to the Future 2, and Ghostbusters 2. So 89 was real big on, on, on the sequels, apparently. Um, we also had Twins. We which have you seen that with Arnold Schwartz? Schwartz. I that's actually one that that's actually one movie I have not seen. Uh, surprisingly, I've seen I've seen clips I've seen clips of it, but uh, I haven't actually seen the full movie on it. It's ridiculous, but it's it's worth a watch. It really is. Um, I look on this list too, and and the other ones that re- really really stand out: um, Parenthood. Which I just also watched here recently with with Steve Martin. Um, when Harry met Sally, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Dead Poets a, a, a Society, and The Little Mermaid. So, <laughs> kind of all over the place here. Yep. And uh, yeah, we've we've seen we've seen pretty much all of them. It's funny also too that we bring up Batman. Um, the movie because within the last two months and I just started actually collecting the series, they've actually started making a Batman 89 comic book series where the art is done in movie style of the, of the uh, Batman 89. So far there's five issues in total. There's the regular covers and more like an artist rendering cover from like a movie poster style. So, I've got all those so far. It's, it's a it's a good series so far. Uh, it sounds pretty cool. I think I'm not a huge comic, but you know, book guy. But I I appreciate it. Do you know that in '89, in the summer of '89, the Game Boy was released from Nintendo? Do you have one? Oh yes, yeah. I burned out. I, I burned out many a battery and. Uh, Frustrated the uh, parents, mainly playing Tetris and baseball. Sure. On it. It's just, uh, you know, it's it became one of those things that spawned an entire era for, for you know, the kids in, in, in our generation. Just crazy to, 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 when you think about it and all of the advances in video game software and things of this nature, your PlayStations, Xboxes, th- things of this nature, it all, it, it, it can all be traced back to this time, you know, this era in like the mid to late eighties with, with, with Nintendo, I mean, it just exploded on the market and it was a game changer, man, for the <laughs> all puns in, intended. But, you know, you go from, like, your Ataris and things like that to Nintendo, it's like, holy shit. You know, it's like a whole new world, right? Yeah, it, it literally was. It literally felt like a whole new world. Like, um, it was almost like, oh, hey, we've got better color graphics. We can do this. We can uh, slide through walls and, you know, we can shoot at different angles and whatnot and um the sport games became better wrestling games uh kind of became a little bit more prominent 
you know, I still think and laugh a lot too about the fact of going into a Toys R Us and just seeing how many games. Like there was an aisle, just a wall side to itself of just Nintendo games. And now you go into a store and you see like maybe one like four foot cabinet full of games. I know it. Um, let's see. Also in 89, obviously the, the president of the United States had, at this time had just become inaugurated as president, uh, George H.W. Bush. Uh, so Dan Quell makes uh, makes it our vice president. Um, do you remember the huge controversy with the Exxon Valdez spill? In um, I guess that was Alaska, right? Yeah, it was. Uh, it that was it. That was it. Yeah, it was. It's one of the biggest oil spills ever. Um, the only thing that sticks out in my mind were how much they put the emphasis on like all the birds and everything that they were picking up that were like soaked in oil and stuff. 240,000 barrels of oil spilled. That's the equivalent in gallons wise, 11 million gallons of oil spilled wow. in, into the water. Jeez, oh, Pete, man. I remember that, but I guess I didn't re realize it was that extensive, you know, but I mean, I wasn't paying paying attention to shit like that at that time, I guess. All right. Um, November the 23rd. This, of course, is Thanksgiving night in 1989. The World Wrestling Federation is going to present its third annual Survivor Series. And it goes down at the Rosemont Horizon in Rosemont, uh, Illinois, a, a suburban of Chicago. Um. This building, we've talked about this in previous episodes, and I forgot that this edition of the Survivor Series took place in Chicago, but this building has, you know, every time we cover a show, it seems like we're going back and talking about the Rosemont Horizon. And, and you look at the number of events that, you know, big events, that they have hosted over the years, like the very first pay-per-view for the WWF was the Wrestling Classic. That took place at, at the Horizon. A portion of WrestleMania two took place in this building. And then you fast forward, and I mean, if it's been a major thing, by and large, if it happened in the state of Illinois, it happened in this building. WrestleMania 13 really stands out because of Austin and Bret the Hitman Hart. Yeah, they had a lot of stuff. Uh, I mean, wrestling, concerts, uh, you know, all, pretty much anything. I mean, if you happen to remember Arena Football, okay, Arena Football, their second Arena Bowl championship game was played in that building. Um, a lot of minor league stuff has happened there, uh, WNBA stuff. Um, but pro wrestling in general, like you said, the wrestling classic, uh, 
part of WrestleMania two, you got survivor series, uh, 89. And then it was back in 2019. The list just goes on and on of all this great stuff. I don't remember though. Was this, was this the second to last survivor series that they held on Thanksgiving night? Cause I want to say it was either this one or 1990 after that one, they kind of moved away from doing it on Thanksgiving night. Okay, 1991 was the first year that it was not held on the actual holiday. Okay. I know that, that, because that <laughs> was the one in, in Detroit, and I was at that show, and it was Wednesday night. Because they had, they had built this thing as the Thanksgiving night tra- uh, tradition. Then they, they had to change it up in 91. And um, it was the Thanksgiving Eve a tradition. So th- they would have this one here in, in 89. They would do 1990s on Thursday night. And then after that, it went, it went to Wednesdays before moving everything to, to su- Sunday nights. But yes, this, you know, we're nearing the end of this part of, of its history. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I, I remember it. I remember it now because, uh, Literally, my brother had somebody who lived in our neighborhood when we had moved from where we were when I first grew up to where I would live out until I started moving out on my own. And my brother had a friend of his that would get the pay-per-views. And every now and then I would get lucky enough to be invited over to the house. But uh, the Survivor Series ones were the ones that I got invited to. So, like, me and my brother would literally engulf as much food as humanly possible as quick as possible just so we could get in his car and go over to the house and get ready to watch it all. Right. I mean, this this was a huge part of, of family's annual thing. I mean, and it's crazy when, when you think about it because the Survivor Series essentially was created as a cock block to, to Starcade. Because that's when Starcade happened was was on Thanksgiving night, and that was a couple of years prior to this. But it had grown its own legs; like it, it would become a very much a focal point. Like if you were a wrestling family, if you were wrestling fans, you now centered your whole festivities of this holiday around this pay per view. Moms and dads and grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins. I mean, this was a huge thing. And I remember it as a kid going, because we didn't have pay-per-view at, at, at our house. Like, I had to go over to, to a friend of mine's house to watch it. But even then, like, I, I remember it being incorporated into their 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 annual thing. Like, this became a staple of the of the holiday itself. And I, I really wish it was like that still. You, you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, I, I do as well. I, I really, really wish it was, you know, the, the, the magical time that it was back then when literally everything that you talked about with friends was how good this was or how good the storylines were or the fact that you couldn't wait for this event to actually happen 
um, you know, in terms of it going down or going to a buddy's house or, you know, your mom and dad being really excited for the event and everybody gathered around for this. Um, this is why I think, you know, up through 91 has always been cherished the most by wrestling fans as being that time that, you know, that it literally, the business brought the families together. So. Absolutely. I could, I could not have said it any better. Absolutely. Um, let's start breaking down this card. They had one dark match here. I mean, just a barn burner. Why these guys weren't incorporated into the actual pay-per-view, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> The fact that you said that with a straight face is just <laughs> brilliant. I tried, man. I, 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 I held it in as, as long as I could. But Borzukov of the Bolsheviks is going to pick up a win over Paul Roma. Um, future horseman, future, or he was part of the uh, what were they called? The Young Stallions. With, with yeah, he's yeah, he was Young Stallion. I, I mean, thank God it was a dark match, but just seriously, I, I was never a fan of Paul Boris. I was just because, you know the Russian affiliation back then was still kind of strong and kind of cool. Um, and the fact that I've met Nikolai Volkov before. So I've, I've kind of garnered a, a good friendship on that, but uh, yeah, you talk about a strange, you know, dark match for a crowd. And it was like, really, <laughs> we get this before, but then when you look at everything else that they got on there, it was just like, look, you guys are here. Go wrestle for a few minutes. Warm up the crowd for everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> what's in, what What's interesting about this particular in, installment of the Survivor Series, the previous two years, like the whole tagline was teams of five strived, uh, strive to survive. This is the first year they went to the four-on-four and not only that, the teams had their own names. Like there was team captain so-and-so, and he is the captain of this team. That was the first time they really incorporated that into the Survivor Series, which I thought was a unique take on it. Like in our first matchup here on, on the actual pay-per-view, the Dream Team, which is captained by Dusty Rhodes, and it includes Brutus, the fucking Barber Beefcake, <laughs> the Red Rooster and Tito Santana, they are going to p- pick up the win over the Enforcers, which is a cool name. Team Captain yep. Big Boss Man with the big with uh, Bad News Brown, Rick Martell, and the Hockey Talk Man. Uh, 22 minutes and two seconds is the time they get for, for this, this particular matchup. And Rhodes and Beefcake uh, pick up the win as the survivors of their of their particular team. I mean, I look down, I, I love the way that, how they have this broken down. They have who was eliminated in what order, right? So, yep. um, T- Tito Santana is eliminated by Rick Martell, former tag team partners. If you recall back at WrestleMania five, you know, just a handful of months, but before is when we saw the split of uh, strike force. 
Um, that happened around the 9.15 mark. Bad News Brown is just going to say fuck it and walk out because that's what Bad News Brown does back then. Um, Honky Talk Man gets eliminated by Brutus Beefcake at the 17.24 mark. Martell is eliminated by Beefcake at the 20.13 mark. The Red Rooster, who, you know, I expected him to, you know, to win the whole thing, but what do I know? He gets pinned by, by the boss man. Um, and then Bossman is pinned by by Dusty Rhodes. So Dusty and Beefcake are the winners in in this particular matchup. Really, I, not a bad open here. Like you have all of your prolific mid carders, for the lack of a better term. And I hate you know I'm, I I don't mean to sound like I'm shitting on them because I'm certainly not. Because but you look at a roster this loaded, like. For, for me, I totally understand. The only one that really kind of raised a red flag as to why is this guy on or you know involved in this match was Bad News Brown. Like I yeah. understand why Bad News Brown, you know, the loner and all this shit. Like I understand he needs a he, he needs a pay per view payday, but he just seems like he's just randomly thrown in on the enforcer side here. Now, not a lot of backstory here. Not like you had with Santana, Martel, Beefcake, and Honky Tonk had a long-standing rivalry from a year before, um, and, and you know it was it it was. I mean, all roads led to the fact that Beefcake was was on tap to win the IC title from Honky at SummerSlam, if you recall. But it would be the yep. the Ultimate Warrior that would come in. And take his spot and win the title in 32 seconds or what, whatever the case it was. But the Man, you talk story. about a you talk about a WWE what if episode. How about that? How about Warrior doesn't win the belt that night? It actually goes to Beefcake. How much of a time skew that we would be talking about now? Because I mean, we you and I talk about it like it's the most epic thing that's happened. Because back then when we were a kid, holy crap, he beat him in eight seconds. You know, that's amazing because of Warrior. But what would have happened if Warrior didn't get that opportunity and it was actually Beefcake? Yeah, well, I mean, we we could probably spend an entire episode talking about that. but Right? It, 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 but it, it, nothing else, Beefcake was so over at this point. I mean, he was almost un- untouchable in terms of popularity because he was, you know, he, you know, with the shears and all of this other stuff, like nobody expected him to, to be as popular with the fans as he, as he was. And even if he, you didn't see him lose very often by pinfall in this era, it was very much, you know, if he did lose, it was primarily by by a count out or a DQ or so, or something like that. Dusty Rhodes, you know, Dusty Rhodes is Dusty Rhodes. And and yep. even though he's more more associated with Crockett and the National Wrestling Alliance and WCW and all that, like I I get that. But this spoke volumes to the greatness that was that was Rhodes here because they even put them in polka dots and things like that. You know, we could, you know, argue back and forth as to whether it was a rib or whether it wasn't, it doesn't matter. The thing, what matters is he got it over. He yeah. Got it yeah. Over. He got, he got it over uh, with ease too. 
with ease that he got it over. And uh, let's also not forget, too, that this was also the beginning portion of the storyline for Sweet Sapphire. Yeah. Sapphire was in the crowd yeah. that night. And she w- she would become a game changer, too. And, you know, and nobody really... Ex- and that's just, you know, things... Are- and I and I realized that these eras are so different now because back then, Brex, we didn't have internet, we didn't have spoilers, we didn't. I mean, unless you subscribe to a dirt sheet or something like that, nobody had any idea what the shit was going on. It was just what it was. What we saw is, you know, we reacted based on what we saw, and it, that's what made these pay per views so special. To you know, in my mind. Not only was it there, there was only four per year. So, I mean, you were building up to this big climax, right? These larger than life shows. This was not the the superstar show on Saturday morning. This was not Saturday night's main event. This was not primetime wrestling. This was pay-per-view. This was what everything led, you know, leads to. And even in a gimmick show as what this was, there was just such an anticipation for it. And that is the genius that was at the time Vince McMahon and how he was able to, you know, create this uh, feeling like you could put any kind of matches on paper, but he had the ability to create a feeling of anticipation of excitement of what ifs, what's going to happen, the surprises by and large, that's a lot of what's missing. In, in in today's product and that's not just in wwe that's any promotion on a major level here and that's just oh. my opinion oh yeah no no doubt no doubt i agree with you 100 percent on that um the fact that he could take an eight-man match and have you invested the entire way um like you knew you were waiting for the team captains to finally do it. And the building up to those two just being in the ring would sometimes take forever. Like, I don't think I'm trying to remember, but I don't think boss man and Rhodes even really touched until midway through the contest. And when they did place erupted, right? place erupted and went wild it was great because every team captain when they finally got in the ring at the same time the explosion was there um even in the beginning when guys were first getting tagged in red rooster was even still getting a massive pop when he first got tagged into the match so i mean the investment that you had and the creative mind that he had back then to be able to take um these integral parts and move them into such a position that every fan, whether it was in the arena or watching it at home or watching it wherever, was invested that entire time. Um, just shows you how brilliant things were back then. Um, uh, going back to your point as a team, yeah, I. the only reason I can think Bad News Brown was in the match was because he fit the enforcer name because of being the the lone bad guy. That's the only reason I could think, uh, honestly, that he was a part of that. 
Um, Cause he didn't really have a guy that he was feuding with unless they were saying he was feuding with the red rooster. Right. Um, Cause like you said, Beefcake had Honky, uh, Tito had Rick, Dusty had uh, Bossman, which is actually a longer-standing quote-unquote feud because you can take those two back to the Crockett days when it's Big Bubba Rogers and Dusty Rhodes. So, you know, that really sunk in and made sense on that. So he was kind of a lone one out, if you will. So him going out by just walking out of the match made sense. I mean, I don't think him getting pinned in the match or anything would have uh, would have made much sense on it. Um, Honky Tonk Man, and doing some research into this, he never really had a good Survivor Series. No, I no, and that's how the the first one opened up in in eighty seven. It came down to four on one, and he just said, fuck it, I'm out. <laughs> yeah, he's just, he's just like, nope, sorry, God. Next, and then next year, he gets pinned by Bruce Beefcake, um, which, you know, back then, we were all, you know, jumping up and down about, and we thought was really cool. And then now you start looking back over the results, and you're just like, dude, what did you do to, like, just not do well at this pay-per-view? Right. Yeah. Uh, the second match here, as as uh, as I'm looking at this, it um, again. I mean, now this is one of these matchups where, like, I am totally a hundred percent on board with both teams here, and 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 the conflict, you know, be, between the two, the King's Court, and and the way they have this laid out too, just speaks volumes on on the the depth of the talent roster because you're talking, I mean, this is the second match on the card. Now, generally speaking, when you are, you know, putting a show together, you kind of put what is perceived and this is not shitting on anybody, but you know, in, in terms of booking the one match that doesn't have as much hype, you know, behind it or a, a lot of steam or backstory, you usually put that in the number two spot. You you have a hot open, you put what's deemed your weaker match at number two, and then you put another barn burner right after it, right? With the way they have this set up, this number two slot still features some of the biggest names in the history of the business and especially in the WWF in 1989. I'll give you this example. The King's Court, Captain Macho King, Randy Savage. Need I say more? <laughs> right? I mean, literally, just first person out of the gate, you don't even have to go any further than that and just say, you know, Macho King, Randy Savage, right there alone. And then you see everybody that's on his team, Earthquake, Dino Bravo, Greg Valentine. I mean, just a perfect setup team together. Um, and then, you know, you look at the other side. Uh, Savage was uh, uh, working with Duggan at the time. You know, um, I, that's I, honestly, 
really outside of the Savage Duggan one, I don't know too much of a backstory into who Earthquake Bravo and I know Valentine was uh, feuding with Garvin at the time. So I'm thinking maybe Bravo was feuding with Hercules. Um, But even saying Bret Hart and Earthquake, which Earthquake back in the day, I mean, God bless John Tenna. He took that gimmick and made it fantastic. And the fact that big man could move as well as he can move. I mean, we've talked about big men that can move. He's one of those guys that were up in the upper upper ranks of guys that you were just in awe at the size, the strength, but just the overall quickness, um, especially when it came to hitting that earthquake, that sit-down finisher that he had. Um, so he was really good. But, yeah, you look at it on here and how you were describing it as, you know, this is where we would put, like, a weaker match. These guys didn't take it like that. These guys brought everything that they had on it, and they really made it good. And the fact that they got Sherry involved in the match near the end of it was uh, another brilliant ploy by them as well. If if memory serves, yes, it was Bravo, or I'm sorry, it was uh, Ronnie Garvin and Valentine were at the near end of their rivalry. Um <laughs> Then I remember Bret Hart being p- positioned with Bravo because this is when they started toying with the Hart Foundation going se- separate ways to see who could last on their own. Bret was put with the with the four by fours here. Uh, we we would see Jim Neidhart late, later on in in the show, um, and Earthquake was still pretty much new to, to this so they had him matched up with Hercules on the house show loop because Hercules was was you know seen as as somebody who could take care of Earthquake as he was getting his you know that foundation un, under the whole character and stuff um, so on paper you know p- people are like well this doesn't make any sense why do they have this guy this guy this guy but as you know back then I got it Looking back on it now, I can even make more sense of it. And I totally, as a promoter especially, I can see why they went this route with it. Because not not every, not everything is going to have a solid storyline behind it. If if you can get like two solid, you you know, storylines with this many people, and that's what you're building the whole match off of, especially with, with, with Savage and Duggan. Because that was well, that was well established. Savage became the Macho King because he won the crown from Hacksaw Duggan. That's you know that's what set up this whole matchup. And you know Earthquake making such an impact that he did, and Hercules being the strong man or whatever. There is kind of your your secondary story because this was when Hercules was coming off that heel run after being sold to the million dollar man. So at this time they were really trying to put a lot of um, a lot of emphasis into into trying to make Hercules like this really big baby face. Uh, unfortunately it didn't take off the way that we thought it would and he would eventually go back heel, form this tag team with Paul Roma l- later on. 
that I thought could have been world tag team champs at some point. But again, that's another one of those what what if you know scenarios. Every time I go back in time and think about Roma and Hercules as a tag team. I think you froze up again. We back? Yep, there you are. Hi. Okay. Hey. Yeah, I, I had a feeling when you have everybody else that's, you know, here in the compound using stuff at the same time. But, uh, no, um, every time I think about Power and Glory, I always think back to Hawk making fun of them and going, you're going to start off as power and glory, but by the end of it, you're going to be, you're going to be sorry and gory yeah. when we're done with you. <laughs> so it's always a great thing. But yeah, this was a beautifully put together match. Every <laughs> ounce of it made sense. Even when we look back at it now, it makes sense. Uh, it was just beautifully put together for a second match. I I see no problems with it whatsoever. I loved it. I did too. I, I I'm a hundred percent on that same realm with our next matchup here. Now you you want to talk about kind of screwy booking? Not really screwy, but like anybody who who follows this product for any length of time, you know what the main event is going to be, and it's anything with Hulk Hogan in it. Very much. This is very much in the core group of, of Hulkamania. And he's in the midst of his second reign as the WWF champion. And they literally have him in mid-card you know, position here. Now, we'll talk about why that is later on when we get to the last segment of, of the show. But, I mean, this, again, this is a testament to how stacked this roster is. The Hulkamania, yeah. um, Hulk Hogan, Jake the Snake Roberts, and Demolition, Axe and Smash, are going to pick up the win in 27 minutes and uh, 30, 32 seconds against the million-dollar team of Captain Ted DiBiase, the Powers of Pain, and Zeus, uh, who, of course, is a you know tiny lister. Uh, and who was the um, the adversary for Hogan's character in the movie No Holds Barred that we referred to earlier in this program. Um, Hogan and DiBiase's rivalry you know, at this point is, is, is like two years old, but it's one of those things that I feel like they kept going back to because it worked. And... Yeah, it, it worked beautifully. You know, incorporating Zeus in, into this thing to bring more attention to the No Holds Barred movie. And then, you know, you really have two of the monster tag teams, the two prominent teams in, in that are at the focal point for the tag team championship, Axe and Smash, and then the Warlord and the Barbarian. This whole match makes absolute perfect sense for, for 1989, in my opinion. Would, would you agree with that? Oh, yeah. This, this was beautiful. This was another one of those 
ones where it was just right booking, right time. You had uh, perfect balance on all sides. Um, the way people were eliminated in the match made sense. You know, Zeus being first out because nobody really had control of him. He didn't really speak all that great uh, character-wise because he was just a big monster, big bash guy, um, you know, constantly choking down on Hogan, chucking the referee to the side, ref comes back again, throws it basically almost through the ropes. I, I literally watched the second throw that he did on the referee, and you can kind of look at Tiny, looking back at the ref to make sure he stayed in the ring. And it was kind of like, in his mind, he went, I didn't mean to throw you that hard. <laughs> right. But, I mean, that was perfect. Um, you know, the the power of the pain, getting, uh, you know, eliminating both acts and smash made sense because that was Mr. Fuji's new team that he believed was more powerful and better than Demolition. Then you get Warlord and Barbarian that get disqualified because they double team up on Hogan. Uh, you know, nothing big on the wrath. Uh, Jake gets eliminated because he DDTs Virgil and then gets a fish drop. I think that was the only time ever that DiBiase's fish drop actually pinfalled anybody. Because well, he had the I million dollars. A guy on the level of, of Jake the Snake. I mean, he, he did it like on on your your syndicated shows with enhancement talent, but certainly not on a, a, a pay-per-view platform and certainly not over a guy a caliber of Jake Roberts. Right, right. And that's, like I said, that's another testament to, you know, uh, the guys and how they were at that point in time to be able to have such a, you know, almost a setup move that we would call it. Yeah. Uh, back in the day to be able to take out somebody uh, in the match. Uh, much like you and myself, I'm sure, we kind of sat there and went, wait a minute, Hogan's not going on last? Yeah. Hogan's team isn't in, you know, it threw us off at, you know, back in, back in the day because we were like, this is awesome. We got to see Hogan early, but why are we seeing Hogan early? Right. But we also didn't care because of how great the matchup was. So I'm much in line as to what you were. This was another fantastic match, booked together, properly put together. Everything just mended and meshed well. Yeah, and um, that really kind of goes along with our next match here. Um uh, you know, two other perfectly paired teams, you know, in terms of storyline, in terms of of chemistry, you had the uh, the Rude Brood, awesome name. Uh, yeah. <laughs> team captain of Ravishing Rick Rude with Mr. Perfect and the fabulous Rougeau brothers, all of them guys, you know, they just meshed very well together. They all have very similar personalities better than everybody else, especially perfect who would, you know, wind up becoming the sole survivor of this particular matchup. Um, they're going to get the win 
in just over 21 minutes over Rowdy's uh, Rowdy's Rowdy's. Uh, Even Jesse had problems saying that match. Had to say that name on the pay per view. <laughs> Rowdy's Rowdy's with Captain Rowdy Roddy Piper, J- Jimmy S- Superfly Snuka, and the Bushwhackers. Um, look, uh, say say what you want, uh, but the you know there was there was rivalries and heat between every member of both of these teams. Piper and Rude, Snuka and Perfect, Rujos and the Bushwhackers. Perfectly laid out. Uh, of course, we were not going to see Piper get pinned because in this era, Piper never got pinned. Uh, he and Rude would, would be eliminated with, with a double count out, but, you know, pretty much, pretty, pretty standard here, you know, back and forth here. It was... Um, the, the Russos were eliminated, and then the Bushwhackers were eliminated, which left Piper and Rude. They were both counted out. Leaves uh, Snuka and, and Mr. Perfect here, and Mr. Perfect being perfect. You know, how else could you end this thing? He gets the victory here. Yeah, yeah. It it was literally, it was written, written perfectly. Uh, both teams well-balanced. Uh, I think even back then at that point in time, we both probably had it in our head that Perfect would wind up being the winner of that after we saw Rude and Piper get double counted out. Because at that point in time, for as strong as they tried to make Snooka, Snooka was almost... I wouldn't say he, he had dropped to mid-card. He was almost like a lower mid-card because if he was on Superstars, he would win match against enhancement talent. But if he was put up against somebody that was, you know, a name, quote-unquote, he was always the one losing. So, um, but, but yeah. It was very frustrating. It was very Yeah, it It was. It was because you know it made it made it difficult to really get behind him in terms because uh, you know it was great seeing him, but even back then when you looked at him, you didn't really know. You could see the disconnect in certain people. Snuka was one of those guys you didn't know if there was a disconnect there. Right. If you know if the real person and the character were one or if there were two different people he really made it believe like the the snooker character was you know who he was in real life um he was still in fantastic shape back then could still fly off the top rope amazingly um even at the age that he was uh by that pay-per-view but yeah overall another fantastic match this is one of those rare pay-per-views that honestly, I don't think we can find a bad match in the entire bunch. No, you know, a, a couple of blown se- segments, you know, s- spots, I guess, for the lack of a better term. Uh, and, you know, like the Bad News Brown head, you know, why was this guy on, on the team? That was a head scratcher. But, I mean, by and large, and we and we still have one one more match to, to break down here. But, you know, you 
you look at this card, you look at the, the talent roster and, you know, again, and I know this goes in, into the fields a little bit, you know, I'm certainly not Dave Meltzer and I'm not going to sit here and shit on, on every possible thing that could have gone wrong or went wrong or wasn't absolutely perfect. But, you know, again, this was our peak childhood and this was when the WWF was really, I mean, they were really establishing themselves as a global phenomenon. And, you know, in some aspects that that continues to this day you know, with the Saudi Arabia shows and things of this nature, you know, their, their footprint as a global brand, you know, you can go back to this era right here. This is where it stemmed from because you had Hulk Hogan, you had Randy Savage, you had all these big name stars that even with Dusty Rhodes, but I mean, he got a lot of his fame in, in another organization for another promoter. And even though he was under the WWF banner here, um, you know, it was still that larger than life persona that just established the WWF as such a huge thing worldwide, not just what we had here. And this was also at a time where they were really starting to start planting the seeds for that next era. And I think that's a lot of why they they laid the show out the way that they did because us as fans, we were conditioned that the main event goes on last unless it's Saturday night's main event. You always had yep. Hogan's match or the WWF title match in the first or second spot because it was late night television and you didn't want to hold that off until the end of the show because us as eight, nine, ten year olds were barely you know able to stay up for the first two matches but we have to stay up because hulk hogan is wrestling exactly this, this was really the first time aside from the royal rumble pay-per-view this was the first one that the show closed out with a main event that did not have hulk hogan in it but his his successor um the ultimate warriors team captain obviously the ultimate warrior um, he is going to be joined by the Rockers, Shawn Michaels and Marty Kennedy, and Jim the Evil Nightheart of the Hart Foundation. Um, now, they would pick up the win over the Heenan family, which had been announced. It was going to be Team Captain Andre the Giant, Haku, and the Brain Busters. Now, by the time this match takes place, Rex, that is not what, what we're given. We're now, Andre Haku, Arn Anderson, and Bobby the Brain Heenan. Yep. Now, we, we didn't know at the time that the real reason why Tully Blanchard was not there was because he failed the drug test just prior to this show and was essentially sent home. So they put Bobby Heenan in, in this position put him in the ring with the ultimate warrior. Now, as kids, we thought it was badass because we hated Bobby Heenan. Like, he was the asshole manager gimmick. And the warrior was flashy, he was strong, he was this. So you wanted to see him get his hands on Bobby Heenan. But now that we know more about what was happening with Heenan, neck injuries, the whole nine yards, and just how fucked in the head that, that the ultimate warrior was back in that time, um, 
you know, you like for me when I went back and watched this, like I cringed. Like every yep. single time, every single time he he got near Heenan, I was like, like I felt tense. You know what I mean? I was like, oh, oh shit, is he gonna fuck him up here? But it is what I it felt. Is. I felt bad for Bobby, um, because you know we know we know now, uh, you know the whole backstory on it. Um, I, I still to this day. With had far advanced as Andre had gotten to that point in time, how he did anything in that match, let alone going to the outside and getting disqualified. And Andre had a massive hatred for the Warrior by that point in time. Um, we know that because you know there were uh, Bobby talked about it a, a bunch before uh, his passing. You know, that he just he didn't like the fact of, you know, he wouldn't listen and that, you know, he thought he had to constantly move at 100 miles an hour. And Andre didn't do that. So Andre, you know, would do something to just stop him in his tracks. So, you know, Andre getting eliminated uh, right away by uh, count out. That made sense uh, there. But the stuff that Bobby just put himself through in that match, like you said, you just cringe when you see him hit the top rope and you see him hit that corner that, uh, um, warrior, I think dropped him on or whatever. Yeah. It's just like, Oh, and then he, you know, he catches him. They do the, the funny gimmick where he catches him with the clothesline as he's going up the aisle to end the show. But still it's just like, wow. You know, but again, that takes you back to the true testament, like you said, of the roster back then. We look at the roster back then, and in our eyes, uh, Jason, the best way to put it was we believed back then any single member could be a champion the next day. And I think that's one of the things that's missing today. I don't think fans honestly believe that there's an entire roster of people that could become a champion at any moment on TV now. Because back then, I mean, we thought even, we thought back in the day, uh, like you were talking about on Saturday night's main event, it was literally legitimate for us to think that Nikolai Volkov could beat Hulk Hogan for the WWE championship. Um, that Hercules could beat Hulk Hogan for the championship. There were so many guys. Froze up again. God damn it. There you are. <laughs> I knew this was going to happen. I knew this was going to happen because Jazzy had to take care of something uh, on the regular computer. So that's why I had to use my laptop. Anyways, I'm not sure where I froze up at, but um, yeah, back in the day, we honestly believed anybody could become champion. Yeah, yeah, because it was it was just the way it's the way the business was. One, number two, it was the way it was marketed, and number three, it was a testament to you know we were we're, we're talking about Hogan here as an example. Like he made us believe he was in danger. 
And that was part of his genius. You know, a lot of people shit on Hulk Hogan for not being the greatest worker in the world. But in some aspects, he was the greatest worker there's, there's ever been. Because he and he inspired an entire era and and a, a generation of fans that believed in on every single thing that he said and did. You don't get that by and large the, in this day and age, and that's where a lot of the internet and the internet fans um, have really ruined this business. And I don't know if they can ever recover from it. To be honest with you. Um, no, no, I don't, I don't think it, I don't think it can, uh, Hogan, Hogan could take literally anybody that he was put in the ring with and make them look like a viable championship contender. Yeah. It's, it's still to this day, I've told everybody, I, I'm like, look, I, I am a Hogan fan and people are like, well, why are you Hogan? Fan? I'm like, I don't care what's happened in real life. I care about what's happened in the business and what's happened in that ring and the job that he was able to do to pull me into every match to make me believe everything that he did. And that's why I have been and always will be much like you, you know, will always be a Hogan fan. Absolutely. Straight up. Um, looking back on, on this pay-per-view, Rex, I, I mean, I kind of have an idea of what you're going to grade this thing, but I got to go ahead and ask for, for, you know, official purposes. What do you grade the, the, the Survivor Series of 1989? Uh, you know, there, there were a few blurts. I'm not going to obviously say that it was like an A+. Plus. Uh, pay-per-view. Uh, I'm actually going to go A- minus on it um, just because of the few you know, things that didn't make sense or um, you know, certain things that happened that kind of didn't make sense, but in an overall look at it, I would go A- minus with this. It was, again, I loved watching it all over again, and I've actually watched it twice this week, so um, I too gave it an A minus, and that is just because it was marked down because of the Bad News Brown thing, and mm -hmm. it was marked down because of the Tully Blanchard uh, failing the drug test, not being there, putting poor. Look, Heenan had enough stroke behind the scenes where he said he could have said, "Put the Brooklyn Brawler in here, or put somebody else in 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 Tully's spot," but he didn't. He was insistent, and it's my understanding, he was insistent that he take his place to more or less lead by example and to preserve the continuity of the team that was called the Heenan family. I mean, you, yeah, yeah he, he could have put the Brooklyn Brawler in there, but I don't, you know, when you look back on the history of the Heenan family, Brooklyn Brawler's name is not going to be one there that really stands out as one of the marquee members. You, you know what I'm saying? So oh, for, yeah. him, for him to go in there, and especially with the abuse that he took from the Ultimate Warrior, um, speaks volumes on the professionalism that was Bob, you know, Bobby the Brain Heenan. So I gave it a name minus. Very fun show to go back and watch took me right back to how I was, how I felt back in 1989. And it was a good feel-good moment. Like, I wasn't pissed off for three hours. Right? I mean, I as I'm watching this, 
the inner kid in me is literally wishing I could go to uh, a Toys R Us and just pick up a boatload of Hasbro figures to have in front of me with the Hasbro ring. I mean, I, I was just imagining all that stuff all over again. Uh, it was great. Um, just like we said, everything made sense. Everything was beautiful on it. And, uh, but much like you said, that's the reason why I gave it an A minus was because of the bad news, uh, Brown portion of it. Uh, the Tully Blanchard thing now would make sense, but, you know, feeling off of it from back in the day, even not knowing about that, uh, I wouldn't have put that into the, my factor of the rating. Uh, like I said, just there were certain things even to me back then just didn't sit well or didn't make sense to me. But, yeah, I think us saying that this was a uh, A-minus show is perfect. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, we're going to be back here in a couple of weeks, and so we're, we're going to tackle another survivor series because we are in the month of november and for me when i think of the month of of november it is the survivor series it's all about the survivor series and it's also the time of year that i put i put my my christmas tree up so i'm feeling very very happy (laughs) 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 that that just means we you know you, you get a, you get the uh, Christmas tree up, and then you uh, you watch No Holds Barred, like yep. everybody else did. <laughs> yep. yep. And uh, for anybody who's interested, and this is a cheap plug here, a one hundred point three FM out of Detroit is now playing one hundred percent Christmas music from now until the end of the year, and I am so excited about that. Like my drives to and from work just got that much happier. <laughs> I I I have serious uh XM for my drive because uh where we're at, you know, <laughs> in and out of uh certain places and they're getting into that. Uh my I tend to really let the Christmas music flow uh Thanksgiving week. Uh it's typically when I do it. I'll slowly start to let the songs filter in but it's usually that thanksgiving week that uh that's when i let the 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 full-blown music hit so right no i get it man i'm not mad about it so right (laughs) we're just happy it was Awesome to sit down here and and discuss this show with you. And uh, we're going to have Ray Jackson back on here um, very shortly to kind of make up for him not being able to be here. I know he was really looking forward to doing this show this week, but we had to get something recorded and get and get it up on 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 the feed. So we're, yeah. we have a very loyal fan base, and you know if we don't provide some sort of show they start to get a little pissy and we really can't have that so no we're not in the mood to be buried under chairs like uh terry funk and mcfoley were a long time ago in a galaxy far far away right right nice 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 a subtle reference there pal yeah all right well we certainly appreciate everybody tuning in this week and we will be back in two weeks time with a brand new episode 
of the Turnbuckle Time Machine. For Rex Havoc, I'm Jason Klaus. Uh, we encourage all of your feedbacks. You can uh, look us up over on Facebook. Just look for the Turnbuckle Time Machine podcast page. So with that, we will see you in with another episode of the Turnbuckle Time Machine here on the Jackal Creations Podcast Network, powered by Anchor.fm. I'm Jason Klaus. And you know as well as anybody that in this day and age, and no matter where you look, there's something negative happening. There's something that is bringing us down. There is something that is causing us roadblocks on our journey of life. What if I told you I had five simple reminders that would inspire us and motivate us to have a better day each and every day? That's what we're going to talk about on Friday night, November the 12th. It will be on that night that I return to Lapeer, Michigan in an entertainment endeavor for the first time in over 20 years. But no, I'm not going to be stepping into a wrestling ring. I'm not going to be wearing tights and boots. Instead, I'm going on stage for a one-man motivational stage show. It's Klaus to the Heart Live, and it happens live from the Pix Theater in downtown Lapeer, Michigan. So join me for a night of fun, for a night of inspiration, and something that could get you back on the right path. And more importantly, these five simple reminders to shove all of that negativity out of your day. And it all goes down beginning at 7 p.m. with a special acoustic musical performance from local singer-songwriter Todd Gilbert. It's Klaus to the Heart Live, and it goes down Friday night, November 12th. The Pix Theater in downtown Lapeer, Michigan. Advanced tickets will be available beginning Friday, October the 15th, but you can still Buy your tickets at the door the night of the show. Join me as I come home. (laughs) 